Chapter 15 of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Clavering muddies his boots. It being late afternoon, Mr. Clavering went up to his room, and upon going to the window, his gaze was irresistibly drawn to those dense woods, darkling against the east. His desire to investigate them was returning. He wondered if the man were still lurking there who had accosted Mavis. Mavis Travers. That name was still buzzing through his head, suggesting, always suggesting, something that he could recall or connect with some half-forgotten memory. Looking out thus to the woods, his eye was attracted by the distant figure of a man hastening toward them across the meadows. He recognized at once that tall, powerful form. But why should Lord Meldrum seek the woods in the gathering twilight? The old, unwelcome suspicions came flooding back, and he made up his mind to follow, if he could not overtake him. But by the time Mr. Clavering had issued from the manor and descended the double terrace into the gardens, which he must cross in order to reach the meadows and the woods beyond, Lord Meldrum had passed from sight. To judge by the haste he made, he was bound upon a mission of more importance than a desultory stroll through the woods. Mr. Clavering was quite red in the face from his attempt to overtake him when he finally arrived at the border of the meadows which, to his dismay, he found to be marshy. But he manfully went forward, although it cost him a pang as his beautifully polished patent leathers slipped in the oozy grass. Lord Meldrum evidently knew well the shortest cut to the woods, but what was Mr. Clavering's surprise, upon emerging from the meadows and entering the shadow of the great trees, to discover that a well-defined path led shortly to a small clearing, beyond which he saw the dim outlines of a rough cottage or woodcutter's abandoned hut. In his excitement and eagerness to reach it, he failed to observe a small morass that lay between it and him, and at the first step forward plunged into the mire halfway up to his knees. With a groan of despair for his ruined elegance, he made frantic efforts to extricate himself, but only succeeded in floundering deeper. At length, really fearing that he would be sucked down by the mire, he raised a long, dismal shout for help. In answer, the figure of Meldrum towered in the doorway of the hut. Mr. Clavering repeated his cry, desperately waving his arms. Otherwise, he did not move. He dared not. Lord Meldrum hurried toward him, keeping to the narrow, grass-grown path that skirted the morass. When he was near enough to recognize the gesticulating little man caught in the grip of the mire, consternation and amusement struggled with each other across his face. "'By Jove, Clavering, my dear fellow, what possessed you to come here?' "'If you will be kind enough to assist me out of this predicament, I will endeavour to explain,' answered Mr. Clavering testily, resenting Meldrum's obvious desire to laugh. "'Forgive me, old chap,' said Meldrum, with an expansive smile. "'But you know you look deuced funny, stuck there in the mire.' "'This is not the time to indulge in humour,' rebuked Mr. Clavering, with rising indignation, and after another fruitless effort to free himself. "'A moment more, and I shall be sucked under.' "'Not the slightest danger of that,' reassured Meldrum, choking down a laugh. "'The bog is not deep enough. But here, wait a minute, and I'll get you out.' Withdrawing into the clearing, he shouldered a stout branch that lay upon the ground, and hurrying back with it, approached as near Mr. Clavering as he could, without being himself drawn into the mire. Holding firmly one end of the branch, he bade Mr. Clavering grasp the other and hold on tight. Then he drove his heels into the turf, exerted all his strength, and Mr. Clavering rose precipitately from the bog. His boots caught, slipped upon the soft, wet turf, caught again as Meldrum threw his powerful weight into the scale, and the next moment he fell, clear of the bog, on his hands and knees at the feet of his rescuer. 
There was a twinkle in Meldrum's eye as he assisted Mr. Clavering to rise, but with praiseworthy gravity he remarked that it was fortunate he had happened to be near at hand. Mr. Clavering was not a profane man, but when he beheld the state of his boots and his once immaculate dark grey trousers and black frock coat, he was obliged to set his teeth. "'I cannot return to the manor in this condition,' he said despairingly. "'But, dear boy, there's no help for it.' And now Meldrum's hearty, ringing laugh awoke an echo in the woods. Indeed, Archibald Clavering, dripping with mire, hatless, disheveled, and with eyes still round with fear, was cause sufficient for mirth. He, however, saw no humour in his predicament, and was highly incensed with Meldrum. Meldrum laid his hand affectionately upon his shoulder. "'Dear old chap, if you could only see yourself!' "'I have no wish to,' snapped Mr. Clavering. "'If you have a trace of friendly feeling for me, you will go at once to the manor and send Jenkins here with a change of clothing.' "'But, Clavering, you mustn't stand here shivering by the edge of the bog,' objected Lord Meldrum. "'I will stand here all night rather than return in this condition,' responded Mr. Clavering obstinately. Lord Meldrum doubtless knew how impossible it was to move him when he had a spell of stubbornness. Yet, as a last expedient, he mentioned that gentleman's favorite bugbear, a severe cold, against which he was always fussily guarding. But Mr. Clavering was obdurate. He would permit no one else, save Jenkins, to behold him in this plight. "'If I feel chilly,' he said, "'I can go into that hut.' "'I wouldn't go in there,' said Meldrum quickly. "'Why not?' suspiciously. "'You were there.' Dark as it had grown, he fancied that he could see Lord Meldrum flush at this assertion. "'Oh, I er just looked in,' he answered, with an attempt at nonchalance. "'It's a bare place. You wouldn't find it attractive.' "'I do not find this bog attractive,' retorted Mr. Clavering, determined now to explore the hut. "'But you know, old chap,' opposed Meldrum, "'somebody may be living in that hut, after all, and if he should come back and find you there, there might be trouble.' Mr. Clavering felt himself grow cold, but it took hardly less courage on his part to risk being seen by Lady Pevensey in such a plight as this, than face a potential inhabitant of the woodcutter's hut. Moreover, his detective zeal was aroused. "'I shall remain here,' he said resolutely. Lord Meldrum turned away with a resigned shrug. Instantly Mr. Clavering felt his courage wanning. "'I say, Meldrum,' he called after him desperately, "'you haven't a, a weapon of any sort, have you?' Meldrum came quickly back to where Mr. Clavering stood, drew a revolver from his hip pocket, and handed it to him. "'You don't know much about firearms, Clavering, so don't play with the trigger. It might go off. If you should see anyone prowling about here, don't lose your head. I will be back as soon as I can. By the way, Clavering,' with abrupt directness, "'how had you happened to come here?' Mr. Clavering hesitated. Prevarication had grown no easier for him in the course of his detective work. "'From my window I saw you making across the meadow,' he replied finally. "'I felt like a stroll in the woods myself, so I attempted to overtake and, uh, join you.' "'Sorry you didn't mention your desire at luncheon,' remarked Lord Meldrum dryly. "'It might have saved you a dip in the mire, and would have given me a companion. "'Well, look out for yourself, old chap. I shan't be long.' Left there with the dark woods encircling him, Mr. Clavering placed the revolver with great care in his own pocket, and thereupon breathed easier. He was not accustomed to firearms, and had almost a womanish fear of them. Looking down upon the morass which showed now as a black patch in the darkness, he knew well where Meldrum had gained the boggy mud that caked his shoes on the night on which Lady Pevensey's necklace was stolen, and he had professed to have walked from the railway station along a dry and dusty road. As always, he recalled with a shock how Mary Grey had gathered particles of similar mire from the library floor on the night of Lord Portstead's death. But she, too, 
judging from the condition of her boots and skirts, must have crossed the bog herself that morning when she claimed to have gone into the woods to gather ferns. What was the object of her prying interest in the case? Blackmail? He was convinced that she was a Becky Sharp. But Meldrum! If Burton knew of this incriminating evidence against him, added to his own admission of having gone into the gardens after his interview with Portstead instead of going up to his room, the detective could not but abandon his persecution of Robert and arrest Meldrum. The fact that Portstead was killed with his brother's pistol by no means proved conclusively that it was Robert who had fired the shot. Mr. Clavering writhed in mental agony. Meldrum, though nearly twenty years younger than he, was his one intimate friend, and had been so since the time he was a big, overgrown, fun-loving boy at Eton, and Mr. Clavering had been appointed his guardian, jointly with his widowed mother. Mr. Clavering was not of the nature to make friends readily with other men. To begin with, he had no interest in sports, that magic bond of union between Englishmen, and though he belonged to several select clubs, he had become a member rather because he believed it the correct thing for a gentleman of his standing to do than from any spirit of good fellowship. As a boy at school, his almost womanish prudishness and precision of dress had made him a butt for ridicule, and as a man these characteristics, combined with a pompous stiffness of manner, alienated many and caused others to hold him in a sort of tolerant contempt, as a Betty and old fogey. But Meldrum, with the frank heartiness which endeared him to all who knew him, with the striking exception of the Earl of Portstead, broke through this prim reserve and pomposity, found the true man, sensitive, conscientious, and kindly, and forthwith began with him a warm friendship. Mr. Clavering, on his part, regarded the jovial, virile Meldrum with a species of mild adoration, and in no event could he or would he voice the suspicions he had been forced to hold of him. If he had killed Lord Portstead, it must have been done under strong provocation in a moment of passion, and if he were the great-hearted man Mr. Clavering believed him to be, he would not allow the brother of the woman he loved to suffer for him. His own words proved that he intended to save the boy, and, at the same time, they might be taken as self-incriminating. Mr. Clavering decided that in any case he could do no more than let matters drift to a crisis, in the meantime gathering secretly whatever clues he could, for it might be that Lord Meldrum was as much a victim of circumstantial evidence as Robert appeared to be. As a beginning, he would explore the hut which Meldrum had evidently come to visit. As he approached it, he became aware how very black and ominously still the woods were, so still that the sudden strident screech of an owl sent him shivering with vague terror. The great trees arching over the cottage seemed to reach out menacing arms toward him, but when he turned and would have fled from them, the fear of falling again into the quagmire sent him shivering to the very door of the hut. And now the shadows all about seemed to be filled with eerie sounds which in his nervous fear he could not identify, and he sprang into the cottage as into a refuge, one hand on his hip pocket bulging with Meldrum's revolver, the other grasping his silver-topped cane which had been rescued from the bog, and with which he was now striking at the blackness in the room. Presently, however, convinced that no immediate danger threatened him, he laid down his cane and lighted a match. Before it flickered out he had time to observe that the door had fallen from its hinges, the one window was broken, and that there was no one but himself in the room. A second match revealed a rough table in a corner, and on it a half-burned candle. After several failures he succeeded in lighting the candle, and immediately felt more courageous as the darkness became dissipated. The room he was in was a very small one, and devoid of all furniture save the table. A stout partition with a door midway 
led into a second room. He entered this with no little trepidation, but found it empty as the first. The sight of a square trapdoor in the boarded ceiling, with a rudely constructed ladder hanging underneath against the wall, gave him an unpleasant start. But he made up his mind that if he were to remain in this hut until Meldrum's return, he must discover whether or not he was alone in it. So, raising his cane, he rapped smartly upon the trap-door, though his heart quaked. There was no response, only the sighing of the wind through the trees outside. Emboldened, he lifted down the ladder, and mounting with some difficulty, not being accustomed to ladder-climbing, cautiously raised the trap. Holding the candle above his head, he surveyed a small, low garret. It was empty, but in one corner was a bundle of hay, which had clearly served as a bed, for on it was a pair of blankets, of excellent make, as he discovered upon closer inspection. Poking about in the hay for clues to the identity of the owner, he found a false black beard. That was all, but it was sufficient to convince him of what he had already suspected, that the recent occupant of the hut was the same man who had accosted Mavis and her nurse, Elena. Moreover, the man was likely to return, and Mr. Clavering had no desire to be caught by him like a rat in a trap, so he descended more quickly than he had come up, closed the door, and hung up the ladder as he had found it. He then went into the front room, thinking it the safest place in which to await Meldrum, for whose speedy coming he devoutly prayed. Having set the candle in a convenient notch in the table, he was about to take up his station in the doorway, with cane in one hand and revolver in the other, when a snapping of twigs caused him to glance in alarm toward the window. There he saw a man peering in at him, his face pressed against the broken pane, a thin, dark face, stamped and seared with evil. Almost instantly, as Mr. Clavering looked, the man dodged back into the shadows. But in that one brief glimpse he knew him. He was Thompson, Lady Ursula's former butler. End of chapter 15